Welcome to Biblical Foundations, a podcast of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm your co-host, Quinn Mosier, along with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Join us as we discuss issues in biblical scholarship for the church. Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. Over the past few months, we've been walking through the Gospel of John, and these podcasts have come from a series of lectures that Dr. Kostenberger gave at the For the Church workshop at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today, though, we hit pause in the series to listen to an open Q&A session on all things related to John's Gospel. The questions come from the participants that were at the lectures, and we think that you will benefit greatly from the questions they asked. So listen in now to episode 54, Q&A on John's Gospel. Dr. Kostenberger, my name is Jake Rainwater. I'm one of the PhD residents here. Uh, Thank you so much for these lectures and it, it's just, it was wonderful to hear your insights into the gospel of John. I do have a question. Um, uh, you, you kind of glossed over it pretty quickly, um, but you translate uh, monogenes as one and only. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could provide some more justification for that. Um, there's been some recent work, especially by Charles Lee Irons, on uh, calling for us to translate monogenes as only begotten instead of the more recent kind of trend of translating it as one and only. So if you could just provide some justification for that. Certainly. Um, It's hard to answer that briefly, but I I think I can do that. Um, Yeah, one and only or one of a kind, unique. uh, In my commentary, I actually gloss it as one of a kind or unique, okay? But uh, one and only, similar, you know, that's what, I think virtually all, I mean, many, like the NIV, I think, has one and only. Uh, I think the underlying issue is whether or not there's some sort of a biological undercurrent, uh, or, you know, theological in the sense that you have a, um, a, a early teaching of the, of the, the begetting of, 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 of the Son in eternity by the Father. Um, when I studied that um, closely from my commentary, um, my sense was that that was a later doctrinal development, but that uh, John in his prologue uh, was not yet so advanced as to think of eternal ontological uh, relations within the Trinitarian Godhead. Uh, I wrote a, a whole chapter in a book called uh, Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinity in John's Gospel, uh, chapter one, where I talk about uh, John in the context of first century Jewish monotheism. And so I think for John in the first century, the, the main issue was how can Jesus and God both be theos? You know, without that amounting to diatheism, meaning belief in two individuals as God. I think that was the primary issue that he was dealing with um, for obvious reasons, because of the strong monotheistic, right, commitment in Judaism. Uh, and so he was making a case there that, that Jesus was the, the, the sent one from the Father, and then in John 10, 30, he says the Father and I are one. They're, you know, one entity, uh, united in mission. Um, so I would just, um, so I don't agree with, with Irons. Um, 
you can read Dan Wallace's response to him, who pretty much wrote what I would have said, also doesn't believe in it, uh, which made me feel better, you know, uh, <laughs> pretty good company there. So I'm, I'm skeptical. Um, I, uh, I think it's a good example of the difference between biblical theology and systematic theology. I don't disagree with the doctrine of eternal begetting. My concern is an exegete. It's just, you know, is that what John intended when he wrote mm. Monogenes? I see more of that Septuagint background, background that I was talking about, you know, the reference to Abraham and Isaac being unique and so forth. Over here. Dr. Kostenberger, thanks for sharing with us today. Uh, Travis Montgomery, also resident student. Thanks for setting me up, Jake, with that. Um, this goes back a little bit to our first hour in the chapel. You briefly mentioned Jesus as the word, referring maybe to Isaiah 55 as kind of the sent one. I think probably preachers, Bible students in the room have heard a lot of people refer to Logos there as being kind of related to Greek philosophy. I've also read a little bit of the idea of the word of the Lord being kind of this um, angelomorphic thing that came to the prophets in the Old Testament. Do you think that there's some overlap between both of those ideas or would you say it's a strictly Old Testament idea in the prologue as it relates to Logos? Yeah, yeah it's quite fashionable uh, to talk about, say, Jesus as God's wisdom and to look at Second Temple literature. Um, personally, I'm not convinced that that's the primary background. I, I, I think the Old Testament background, both you know Genesis one and then Isaiah fifty five, are primary, and that what we have here is not just a personification, like in Proverbs eight of wisdom at God's side, but we actually go way beyond that. John says that Jesus was an actual person, not the per personification of God, um, and uh, you know as uh, you know. Salvation historically is the one who, who uh, became flesh, the word that became flesh. So he's obviously advancing what the Old Testament says about the word. But I think the pattern of John's sending Christology, to my mind, is clearly Isaiah 55. I mean, you have everything right there. It's God sending the word right to earth. The word accomplishes God's purpose for which... He sent it on earth, and then the word is returning to God who sent it. I mean, if that isn't exactly what John is saying about Jesus and his mission in the Old Testament, in, in, in John's gospel, I don't know what is. And so I think you have to look no further than Isaiah, especially considering how important Isaiah is for John's theology in so many other ways. You know, and again, I mean, you know, at the end of chapter 12, uh, John refers to Isaiah, both first and second Isaiah, you know, Isaiah 6, Isaiah 53. I mentioned the lifting up uh, allusion and uh, several other uh, direct connections with Isaiah. So I, I think in many ways, John is the equivalent to the book of Isaiah in the New Testament. Question over here. Uh, Dr. Kostberger, my name is Drake Isabel. Um, student here, as you probably know, because I'm currently enjoying your class. Um, I just had a quick question when listening to the first lecture in regards to the debates over John's authorship. Um, 
I was curious, not so much in regards to the more liberal scholars, but to some of the more conservatives, uh, you mentioned like Bauckham and others, who agree with the general historical reliability of the gospel, who accept the theological message of the gospel. Um, I was curious, in light of the um, internal and external evidence, what is it that for them tips the scales away from saying that John wrote the gospel? Good question. I had the privilege of actually uh, talking with uh, Richard Bachem over lunch, and I saw him over in Cambridge at Tyndall House. So uh, I know even a little bit more than you know you might see from his writings because I was I was intrigued as well. You know, so I, I was able able to ask him just more casually in a setting like this. You know, so why is it? Because I was really intrigued by it. You know, because to, uh, to my mind, the historical evidence is very strong. Uh, the one thing that he said is the reference to the sons of Zebedee in John 21 2 uh, was an, a, a stumbling block for him because he feels like, well, how can the author refer in the third person to the sons of Zebedee, you know, in some sort of detached manner, and at the same time, uh, one of those two sons of Zebedee also doing double duty, if you will, as the disciple who, uh, whom Jesus loved. Uh, you know, as the author of John's Gospel. Uh, I have no problem with that because I, I see that uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved uh, is referred to in the third person, uh, you know, all the way through the Gospel. And it's not uncommon, uh, you know, for that to be done. Uh, you look at John 17, where Jesus refers to himself in the third person. Um, so uh, it was quite common in, in ancient historiography uh, for uh, the uh, historian to refer to himself in the third person uh, just to add further objectivity to the account. Um, so um, I hear what he's saying and I, I can see why you know that might be a problem. I don't think it, it comes even close to outweighing you know the very weighty internal and external evidence. So I uh, I think to me, I'm always coming back to the fact that there's already some sort of a, a prevenient decision made to, to not even seriously, you know, consider the evidence in favor of that. And uh, if somebody has that hardened skepticism toward apostolic authorship, I don't think any any historical or literary evidence is likely going to change their mind. So, do you have a question? Yeah. Hi, Dr. Kostenberger. Uh, Charles Ackman. I'm a pat local pastor. Um, I, I really like seeing the reflections or the the parallels with the Old Testament, like the the next day, the next day, the day, next day, kind of mirrors the creation account. And then you you showed uh, Abraham and Isaac and uh, Jacob and Joseph. Um, do you see a similar parallel with uh, Rahab and Achan with the this uh, third lecture with the Israelite. Um, I mean, Achan was an Israelite. He was a of the tribe of Levi, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. And he should have known. He should have seen. But he kept the gold. He buried it in his tent, and he's burned alive. <laughs> um, and then Rahab, who's a woman and a Gentile and a prostitute, and I mean, the list goes on. So, do you, I'm sure you can see the parallel there. Does, do you think that's something, or? Uh, well, uh, I don't remember seeing that in the literature. Um, 
though I'll, I'll check and see if maybe I missed it. I, I think it's sometimes hard to know uh, if you don't have any, anything in the text to, um, to point to, to confirm that. And I usually, when it comes to allusions, do require that it's part of the author's intent to actually, you know, want to allude to a text in the Old Testament uh, for his readers. Uh, and so if, if, and again, the only way we can discern a thorough intent is by any textual, you know, maybe a phrase or, 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 or a quotation. And so... Uh, Glad you asked that because, again, Richard Hayes' you know, very influential work, uh, Echoes of Scripture in, in, in Paul, um, he, he gives a methodology there. So th that's basically implicit, implicit to what I've done. So, for instance, in John 3.16, when you see the reference to God giving his son or the one and only son, you know, you got those two words, monogenes and the, and the giving, uh, which which are also found in Genesis 22, so at least have some grounding there, you know, in the antecedent text. So that's, to test that hypothesis, that's what I would be looking for, go back to those narratives, see if there's anything there that, you know, make, uh, reappears in, in John 3 and 4 to, to test that. So that might be an interesting uh, thesis or dissertation topic to pursue. I'm sure there's, there's other illusions, right? Those were just the most obvious ones. And we have our last question over here. Thanks, Dr. Kossenberger. Christian Williams, pastor of the Grove Church here in Gladstone. Um, would you comment on, obviously believe is a huge theme through the book. How does that relate? How should we think about that in terms of conversion? So like Nathaniel confesses Jesus, son of God, chapter one. Um, the disciples, they see his glory and they believe. Are they converted at that point? Should we think of those as the same or is there different ways to think about it? Thank you. Great question. I just want to compliment all five or six of you who asked questions. Those were all incredibly insightful questions. It just really makes me excited about just the, the intellectual culture here at Midwestern that, that, that we're nurturing and building. Um, so just praise God. I think, and again, we're not just doing that to, to, to be arrogant, but, but just to understand God's word more deeply and, and, and so I, I just uh, I just commend all of you for your insights. I'm sure there are many more good questions that we don't have time for right now. Uh, I think you again picking up on something very uh, astute because there's almost a hundred instances of the word believe in in John's gospel, and there's quite a range. I think not all of them refer to saving faith, what you and I might call saving faith. So uh, you see an obvious example, just one of them. You know, in, in John eight. Uh, 31, where uh, people, uh, some of the Jews, believe in Jesus. And then Jesus said, if you continue in my word, right, if you by the word, then you're really my disciples. Turns out, a little bit later in the conversation, he actually calls them children of the devil. Those are the very same people, you know, who initially, John says, had believed in Jesus, you know. And, and so you see the same in that passage we looked at, John 2, 23 to 25. It's just they believed in his name even, right? But then... Turns out, people like Nicodemus clearly didn't have saving faith, at least not at that point. So in other words, we need to read references to believing in John, right? With that grain of salt, understand this is not yet the Pauline 
you know, nomenclature here. Uh, this is still prior to Pentecost, and so you have a range of, of believing, not all of which would be saving faith. And so I think John deliberately uses the word believe with a broader range to, to tell us that, you know, not everything that looks like faith <laughs> is, you know, saving faith. I think that's, I think, helpful even for us today to keep in mind. Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. For more information, please visit the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern at cbs.mbts.edu. For further resources, also visit biblicalfoundations.org. Join us again next time at the Biblical Foundations Podcast.